Hello and welcome to it. It's our 56th episode on the NDL show. And getting us into our conversation is this amazing teaser from his forthcoming project, Neptune by Zuri. It is called Wave. Like this this before I hit the road. You know I gotta meditate or I'm gonna lose control. You know the sun is in me and I feel it to my toes. You know the water God is in me and I feel it whole. And I'm waving like a fountain. Tape is dropping soon and I'm not sorry I announced it. You don't know how we move, we just do it on some loud shit. Smoking on that loud and we just feeling hella out. And I'm feeling, and I'm feeling, I'm just feeling wavy. This is more than entertainment. It's that music for the brain, bitch. Take you to another plane. First, you got to match my frequency. Tell me what you see. Do you see a beat? Or do you see the energy living inside of me? I just feel enlightened, so don't matter what you see. Cause I just feel this energy that's all in the way. Transporting us straight to Neptune, I believe this track is completely and wholeheartedly appropriate for such an occasion. This track is called Wave by Zuri. It comes from his newly anticipated project titled Neptune. Do follow Zuri. He will be releasing it soon on the socials at ZRI dot period full stop. Thank you for joining me on this episode. I am your fellow podcaster, your host, Nondula Hutzel, here to facilitate pivotal discussions that concern you and I. Last week, we relaunched with two episodes, starting with Betting on Yourself, and then ending it off with the music edition with Gina Jeans, because we do want to get into the minds of the local artists we have, while also shedding light on sociopolitical issues that we experience. So, an important question that I have for you is, are you breathing today? Show me some sign, some signal that you are. If you haven't, follow us on the socials. We are at The NDL Show. If you're listening via Spotify and I managed to keep you listening until this point, this part right here, please do subscribe. Same goes for if you're listening via Apple Podcasts in this very moment, please give us an honest rating. Google Podcast listeners, we see you do something. And if you're listening on Anchor FM, Gabonga. When you feel like talking to me, please do send me a voice note. There's an option on whichever platform you're listening to, by the way. Don't be shy to purchase your own NDL Show t-shirt, sweater or hoodie. Everything that you need to know about this ordering process is in the show notes. We have a very important conversation to have this month. We want to explore a lot of things, not just romantic relationships, but various types of relationships, the lessons that stem thereof, as well as how we can continue to navigate in those spaces as we evolve. It's going to be an interesting month for us. Yes, that's you and I. But for now, we have something important to get into. Do stay tuned. This is the NDL Show. 
Coming up on episode 56 on the NDL show, we talk the failures of sexual education with advocacy manager at the Women and Men Against Child Abuse organization, Nga Murumbetsi. We get into the responsibility that we have in reimagining our relationship to sex, consent and boundaries. All of this coming up, stay tuned. So joining me now to have this much needed conversation regarding the negotiation of consent and boundaries when it comes to sex is a great social innovator and advocate against abuse who is also part of the Women and Men Against Child Abuse organization. It is Nga Murumbetsi. We saw the statistics last year and the reports on teenage pregnancy and on HIV infections in young girls and in conjunction with that we continue to witness the rise in child abuse, gender-based violence and so much more even in young people. This is regardless of the almost 22 years since the Department of Basic Education implemented what we know as Comprehensive Sexuality Education, abbreviated as CSE. So we're going to be getting into that conversation, the conversation about our relationship with sex, consent and boundaries as adults, as well as the department's role in perpetuating the susceptibility to violence that many young people are accustomed to. Nga, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the NDL show. Thank you very much, Nandu, for having me. I think it's appropriate that we start at the beginning. I've written an article about the comprehensive sexuality education section within the life orientation and life skills subjects in primary and high school because Nga, I became aware of how much CSE fails to do what it intended to do, especially for young girls. From you, what is your assessment of how effective CSE has been over the last 20 plus years, given the statistics that we know of? Okay, so that's that's a great question. And like you pointed out, this is something that has been going on, a conversation that we have been having for 22 years. And I want to point out that in 2016, a study found that only 5% of schools um, provided comprehensive sexual health education. That in itself is unbelievably concerning for reasons that also point towards how we understand as society, as education people, as um, responsible people that are supposed to be guiding young adults, how we understand the importance of children and young people being able to navigate the sexual reality in a healthy way. Mm. So it's, it's something that is agreed upon theoretically, as being something imperative. It is something that is needed. It speaks towards, like you said, teenage pregnancy, HIV infections in young women and young men, but also the impact that it has on society is longer. The longevity of the tragedies that it has is much more than just being able to implement it as part of our education system. Hmm, and I believe that what has become apparent to us is that CSE has not really improved much in terms of society's views on sex since it was implemented in the year 2000. I spoke to a young girl from the Eastern Cape after a conversation that you and I actually had sometime last year. And I found her on this Facebook group called Teenage Pregnancy, a support group for young girls who are pregnant. And she was saying that even though she was 17 and pregnant, her LO teacher made it a point to not acknowledge that she was pregnant, even when she was evidently 
currently showing, and this continued until she gave birth. There weren't any attempts from the teachers to understand her situation, and from that, what have you observed, Nga, has contributed to this failure of CSE to really address entrenched issues like teenage pregnancy? Okay, so how you put it that there was a complete disregard from a teacher sort of goes to how we've been having these, these, these conversations that need to prompt us to understand that on the receiving side of teenage pregnancy, what are the people, what attitudes are being dispelled from there? Mm-hmm. So I've broken it down into three different things that I think we really can dissect that can maybe address the contributing factors. So the first being the history of our country. Mm-hmm. And the tool and, and using sexual violence and the experience of sex and especially the negative attributes of sex for young people as something that was used, especially under the apartheid regime. And it seems we didn't transition mm-hmm. in a way that is conducive, that equips our young people as well as then young people, now adults. So there's a gap from people who experienced sexual violence and negative connotations around sexuality that aligns with our history. And with the history of South Africa, we also have to look at the politics. There's a lot of body politics that is still rampant within our communities. Mm -hmm. So experiencing a teenage pregnancy is easily used as a tool for communities to go back to issues that they have experienced. So to give an example around that, in a school that is under-resourced, and it's under-resourced because it's previously Black and it's previously marginalized, and they are what we now term previously disadvantaged communities. In such a school, history plays a very big role. And I'm not saying that focusing on history is something that is negative because history can easily be used as a tool to propel development, right? Mm -hmm. To propel positive conversation, to even curb situations of teenage pregnancy. So history, we look at societal impact and we look at political impact and we look at how we haven't transitioned in a positive way. Then we look at misinformation and stigma. Misinformation leads to the lack of empowerment of our young people around sexual health. And we also have to be very cognizant of the the exclusionary attitudes that we have in our communities around the LGBTQI community Mm -hmm. and how that is also contributing in the rise in teenage pregnancy. You know, if we can be very candid about it, we know that corrective rape is something that a lot of our young people, especially those that are trying to move within the freedom of expression, sexual expression, and then they have to, to, they, they hit these barriers of history and stigma. So there's a lot of unhealthy sexual practices that are a reality. So I want to draw back to your example of of a teenager who has experienced a very ignorant reception from, from a teacher. And the teachers are supposed to be the implementers of the comprehensive sexual education. So that's something that also is a contributing factor in a negative way. And then we look at access to resources. It goes without saying that 
our focus on addressing a lot of ills that have arisen in our communities has, has a lot to do with the fiscal availability, the resources that are available from our fiscus each and every year. And then that fiscus is supposed to distribute to our education, but it's also supposed to distribute to the Department of Social Development, which is going to empower entities like NGOs who are going to then come back into communities and they're going to address issues of teenage pregnancy. So I chose three of the larger ones that sort of build around what then happens when there is a gap as a result of not understanding history, of propelling misinformation, you know, when we talk about healthy sexual experiences, we, we have a lot of situations and we see this a lot in the communities that we work where children experiment with sex. And we describe that as juvenile sexual experimentation because it is a healthy, normal development to be curious about sex. But when you're curious about sex and the only models you have are either violent sex or um, violence as being rape. And you know a lot of people in your communities who have experienced that. Um, you've witnessed corrective rape. And then you go home and there is no resource available for you to dissect the curiosities that you have. Mm -hmm. So being parents. And another thing I want to point out is your previous question was, whether the comprehensive sexual education is effective. And I want to just highlight that when this was implemented and they have reviewed it, and I think it's recent, if I'm not mistaken, in the last five years or so, mm -hmm. parents are allowed to opt out of their children receiving comprehensive sexual education. So it goes to the narrative of, if your parent has got a negative understanding of the history of the sexual dynamics, and, the, and they've associated a certain stigma to it and they don't allocate you resources, you are really trying to get through this by yourself and you're likely going to misinform yourself. That is incredibly true. And I think many of us have been robbed of that useful information because of the negative perception many of our guardians have when it comes to being taught about sex in our formative years. You touched on including content for learners and adults who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community. And I think that's quite important to bring into the conversation. I spoke to a professor who is invested in researching how men navigate their constructed masculinities. And during his research, he found that there were young boys who were saying, that they can't relate to CSE because of how the content only applies to learners who are cisgendered heterosexual. So already the content does not speak for or to them. The lack of resources as well, Nga, it's such a terrible reality that many public schools experience not only for learners, but also the lack of support that teachers who are teaching allo in sexual content. There's an ALO teacher in KZN who spoke to me about how she was there when CSE was implemented, but the ALO teachers were never taken through workshops. And I mean, she comes from a background where sex is not a conversation to be had with children. And she felt that she would be encouraging her learners to have sex. So she opted for the safe route and did not teach that section only until recently. And I say all of this to pose the question around how boys are taught about sex. I've seen a lot of emphasis on how girls ought to conduct themselves. I mean, there was an 
article about a minister in Limpopo who made a comment about how schoolgirls need to open their books and close their legs. And you don't see that energy directed at boys or boys being taught about how to respect their peers who identify as other genders in that regard when it comes to sex. What do you make of the way that sexual education is taught to boys? Oh, what an excellent, excellent question. So I like that you have mentioned, we started this off with being in the Cape, we've touched on KZN, we've touched on Limpopo. And just looking at those three different provinces and we can bring Gauteng into it, I think the general consensus is that the attitude of educators um, is really informed by our own cultural narrative. And, you know, I have to bring culture into it as detrimental as sometimes that 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 leads within conversations. But when somebody says young girls should keep their legs closed, open your books, keep your legs closed. Already we are shunning the people that are trying to understand their sexuality Mm -hmm. and they're trying to do so in a healthy way. And then we are removing, like you're saying, from the conversation, we're removing young boys. So we have to assume, um, and I'm going to put the disclaimer that, you know, I haven't worked extensively with educating young children on healthy sexual practices because I'm not in the education environment. So it is based on assumption that, and from research and from engaging with the end result of when children are not informed um, on healthy sexual practices. So firstly, to address the issue of the boy child, I think in 2022, it it does well for us to say that the conversation should no longer be one-sided. We have to address the boy child. We absolutely have to. Like you said, they are likely to perpetuate unhealthy sexual practices and perpetuate abuse and sexual violence upon other male children, but also the female child. Mm -hmm. So, and I keep drawing, I keep touching on the, on, 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 homosexual relations because our comprehensive sexual education is for heterosexual experiences and that's something that really needs to be um, reimagined so that we can include because we are finding that more and more children like you're saying are finding that content does not align with them if we're talking about the sexual experience between a boy and a girl and I'm really very interested in my own homosexual experience between a girl and a girl or a boy and a boy um, or I am asexual and or I am just sister I, I, I exist within wanting to understand I am bisexual the conversation if it is one side is really going to shut me out. And what happens then is I'm going to find myself experimenting in very unhealthy ways. So whether sexual education is reaching is a no, because if we're talking about only 5% from 2016, having reached Uh, having been implemented within our schools, there's really nothing that we can say speaks to the reach of of the comprehensive sexual education. Is it translating is also going to be a no. So not only is it not translating to the girl child, because public schools have no resources, public schools have got teachers that really would like to implement, but are also working in an environment that doesn't encourage the implementation. You know, that's something that we have to address. Young boys are not a part of the conversation as much as they should. Why that might be is because our societies 
have allocated the responsibility of safe sex to the girl um, because as we're going to touch upon later in this conversation, the physical evidence manifests on the girl child and the girl child carries the stigma. So the girl child has been allocated the responsibility. If you don't want to be shamed, walking around with a pregnant belly, don't be having sex. And that is something that we really need to change because this girl child is not having sex by herself. She did not impregnate herself. Mm -hmm. So if we are excluding the father of the child and we're excluding the boy child and we are allocating this responsibility to girls that have no resources at home. Again, resources are also in terms of accessing information, experiential information from like mm -hmm. your mother, your aunt, a gogo in the, in the city where you're living or in the town where you're living, when that is not available, the girl child is existing alone. She cannot engage with the boy child who has been part and parcel of her conception or her sexual experience, and she doesn't have an educator to turn to. And then if we have to imagine what happens if she has to seek the services of the health facility, we know there's stigma associated with pre teenage pregnancy there. Mm -hmm. And again, that thing of keep your legs closed, that narrative also shifts into the health sector. You want to get contraceptives, they tell you close your legs, don't have sex. You are there, you are pregnant. Why didn't you close your legs? You are there, you are giving birth. Push, you were able to open your legs while you're having sex. Now open your legs and push. So mm -hmm. it's really like the attitude, the language that we attribute to the sexual education that excludes boys, but also then isolates the girl child who is having sex with the boy child. Yes, yes. And it's disheartening because we grow up to realize how much that shame goes on to the one gender only. You touching on girls seeking sexual reproductive health services, you know, a lot of the times we don't even know what we have the right to. Because if I go to the first nurse that I meet at a clinic and she tells me, no, she won't give me contraceptives or a morning after pill or an abortion, I'm going to take it as okay, that's the final answer. Which moves us onto an even more dangerous route of seeking illegal abortions and more. And that's why I was asking you about the responsibility that young boys have as well. Because I find that these experiences shape the way that we navigate romantic and sexual relationships when we grow up as young black adults. Even understanding integral concepts such as consent and boundaries, what do you think the implications are of not having great access to sexual education, especially when it comes to understanding these two concepts? Wow, okay. So consent is a very tricky subject. Mm. because it falls and, and, and there are a lot of other laws that come into it. And because we're talking about teenage pregnancy, I'm going to bring the Termination of Pregnancy Act into it. Mm. So according to the Termination of Pregnancy Act, at the age of 12, you can seek contraceptives and an abortion legally without the consent of your parent. So it means a 12-year-old can engage in sex, get pregnant, and seek a legal abortion and they don't need the consent of their parent. Then we look at the Criminal Justice Act. And I just wanna say that this thing of criminalizing sex and, and associating consent with the Criminal Justice Act outside of the Child Justice Act um, is really, it, it's, it's one of the issues that contributes to why we have this confusion around consent. Mm. 12 years of age, if you are 12, I think it's now gone down to 10, I stand to be corrected, but between the age of 10 and 12, you're able to have sex and 
if your partner, the person you're having sex with is also 10 to 12, then that is not a crime. If you are, but also then we look at if a child under the age of 10 being nine years old is having sex with a 10 year old. Um, and I know it sounds ridiculous when I say it, but mm. it, it, it is actually a reality. Mm. When that is happening, the criminal aspect comes in determining if there is potential for criminal capacity. And again, that's why I said that criminalizing sex is part of the problem that we have because juvenile sexual experimentation from the age of five years old, you are, you can be, if, if, if a five-year-old touches another five-year-old, that is juvenile sexual experimentation. But then from a child protection perspective, we then imagine where has the child seen that? Because we are assuming that a child does not have the understanding, the sexual understanding, and then we take away from it being sex and children are just curious, mm -hmm. right? Then we go above the age of 12 years old. 12-year-old having sex with a 12-year-old, not a crime. 12-year-old having sex with a 13-year-old, not a crime. With a 14-year-old, not a crime. When the other partner hits the age of 15, hmm. then we can criminalize certain aspects. A 15-year-old and a 12-year-old. Although the age of majority is 16 years old, 15-year-olds are having sex. If a 15-year-old is having sex with a 14-year-old, that is something that raises alarms. But because you cannot criminalize a 15-year-old as a minor, the criminal ramification of it is not there. So the criminal justice system does not criminalize the sexual activity. Again, it goes to, okay, a 15-year-old has raped, because that's exactly what it is, a 10-year-old or a six-year-old or a nine-year-old. Criminal capacity has to be determined. So consent takes into account criminal capacity depending on the age of the people. Then we know that 16-year-old um, with a 15-year-old that becomes statutory rape, although again, that is uh, something that we say is normal sexual development. You know, these are kids, they're teenagers, they probably saw something that they were curious about and then they decided, hey, let's try this out. Um, and then a 16-year-old and a 16-year-old, that is not a crime. Um, when the person becomes above the age of 17, it becomes um, statutory rape if the child is under the age of 16. And then from 18, when one of the parties is 18 years old and they have sex with anybody who is under the age of 18, but I know that there is a bit of a leeway um, depending on when the next person is going to turn 18. That becomes a crime. Now that we definitely say it's not statutory rape, it is rape. So the age of consent, to summarize and put it very simply, is 12 years old. But depending on the age of the other partner, then it becomes a criminal element or it gets introduced. Mm. So if children mm. understand this, um, if children are able to understand this from the schooling age, it's something that we have to be able to address. Um, and it's something that we have to be able to tell them that it is not, we don't want to criminalize. And I keep going back to that, that we don't want to criminalize sex. We don't want children to think that their healthy sexual development is something that is um, 
criminal in any way, something that is taboo in any way, but the reality is there is not much comprehension and dissection of the information to allow for children to feel safe to get to understanding the issue of consent. Hmm, I believe that plays a huge role, you know, even when entering into that space, I'm recalling from my own experience, when I started seeing that indeed, this is the thing that's happening, I wasn't really aware, just about how much consent I had, right, or that I could say no. Another thing that I think just to add is that consent is not something that is mentioned extensively in the Allo textbook. And I'm saying this because I've gone through it. It's written in a rather theoretical manner, but really not much is explained in depth to grasp it. We're young and we've gone through the system of sexual education, yet here we are having to debate what consent is and whether it is applicable or not. There is someone who wrote about consent and how they found themselves consenting to sex and then arrived at that location where it was anticipated to occur and actually deliberated in their head and realized that actually, no, I do not want to do this. But because they've already consented, they ended up thinking, ah, let's just get it over with, right? And they said this to make the point that it's hard to reverse consent that has already been given. And they also added how we've now become a society that has normalized a woman saying yes, when really she wants to say no and she means no. And having men think that if they say no, it means yes, she's just being hard to get. What are your thoughts on how nuanced consent is for women? So I like how you said we've reached a point where we are sort of renegotiating our agency to give consent, but also um, I, I think it's Jackie Pamote who spoke a lot on the blesser economy, just to bring it into when young girls date um, older men and the monetization of sex and your consent. So it's, 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 it's something that is, has become very blurred. And that's why I referred to it must be said. No means no. If I say no, I'm not trying to be cute. And then I'm just like, okay, no, but I, you know, secretly mean yes. Although we know that coyness is something that is deemed as being attractive. And girls tend to use that as a tool to sort of see how far somebody is interested in them. Mm. And that speaks to how much you relinquish. And I think if we start really demarcating what we want consent to mean, because we really have to now redefine and reimagine because we've normalized renegotiating what, what our consent means. We've normalized what no means no. We've reimagined what that is. We, we have situations where, you know, for guys, it becomes like the bro talk that, you know, she said, no, she said, no, she said, ah, finally I got her. Mm. And that is like an accolade. And even for girls, you know, we're speaking again just on the side of the young girl with the older man, but it's also the older woman with the young boy. And in that also, especially if money then comes into play, when you renegotiate your boundary within that environment, the, lit the litigation that is available to you to come mm -hmm. forward and say that, okay, I need a recourse because now I've engaged in a sexual activity that I really meant to say no and I didn't say no. 
Mm. right? Mm. When you are asked, because our justice system, if you go and you open a case and the prosecutor has to take on your case, it must be beyond a reasonable doubt. If there's an element of doubt, there is no legal recourse that is going to be available to you. You know, and it's so unfortunate that that is the reality, especially where sexual crimes are concerned, because you have to prove that something has happened. And that then goes to, but what does that mean for victims of sexual violence, you know, for victims who have been pestered? And a lot of the situation, our young girls who should be seeking legal recourse have found themselves in this bit of a sticky situation where you kind of said no, but then you kind of rethought about it. And then you were in his house and you had no transport because he's the person with the car and you have no Uber money and you're in the middle of nowhere and you really like don't know where you are going to go if you say no. And you have been coerced into having sex. You didn't consent to having sex. Whether you then ended up having sex, whether your physiological response pointed towards you enjoying the experience, that becomes null and void. And we need our justice system and our young people to understand that, yes, we want to lean on the justice system, but you give the justice system very little to work with if you position yourself. And again, I say this very hesitantly, but it's the reality. Yeah. Don't put yourself yeah. in situations where you now have to try and negotiate, negotiate yourself out of something that seems hazardous, yeah. right? Yeah. So if you are going to hang out with Jonathan and Jonathan, you've never met him before and he is 27 and you are 16 and he looks cool and he says, come by yourself. You've never met him before. You know, let's, let's try to encourage our young children to take responsibility for their actions as well, mm -hmm. especially for their sexual health. Because if we give them back agency, if we give them back the responsibility to be the leader of their sexual experience, then we can mitigate a lot of these. You know, when somebody says to you, no, you can't get a contraceptive because you, are, you tell them that it is my right. You know, you tell them, inform, you are well-versed in what is your sexual right. And then you do away with the stigma because fear feeds into stigma and your response to a stigma, a stigmatized experience or expression of your reality. So if that teenager you mentioned at the beginning who went to school and she understood that she had sex and she is now pregnant and she still needs to be a part of our education system because that is her right. She has to go to school. Nobody can kick you out of school because you're pregnant. The way that society responds to her is going to take a toll on her mental health if she has not accepted the reality of her situation and her role in that situation. So that's something that we really have to talk about. When we talk about consent, you're giving consent and you're consenting to the responsibility and taking responsibility of the consequences of your action. So consent is not just, I'm saying, yes, let's have sex. What is going to happen after we have sex? What if I contract HIV? Do I know when I'm saying yes to having sex with you? And then we have to negotiate on the use of condoms or if I am on a contraceptive. That is something that we still have to consent to. You know, I'm not saying yes, let's have sex, but no without a condom, but or yes, let's have sex. Or it's something that you have to take a holistic approach to it. What are you consenting to? 
That's incredibly important and you're touching on how the physical manifestation of sex comes to play on the girl, child or young woman mostly. I certainly agree with you, not shaming any young girl who has been in these situations, but more so to say that because of how severe the consequences are usually for women, that we need to be very intentional and responsible with how we relate to sex. This reality is definitely not the same for boys and men who can still go on without the responsibility of their sexual interactions. And this points to my question about why does the girl child continue to be invisible from the system? You know, I, it's, it's sad to say that the woman's body um, and historically, politically, it is a site of violence and you carry the ramifications and the perpetrator generally walks away scot-free. And that is the reality that we don't talk about. And because women have to navigate the consequences alone, firstly, they don't engage systems that are going to further victimize them. So they then decide for themselves to exclude themselves Mm. from the system because being a victim of sexual violence and wanting to seek anything that is within a system, especially the justice system, is going to further victimize you. And that is a reality. Mm-hmm. And I want to just link it with the question of why child abuse and gender-based violence continue to be on the rise, mm-hmm. because it is as a result of the invisibility of their victims from the system. So a lot of perpetrators, it's unfortunate to say, are well aware that the system is not going to do much to them. You know, unless it is something that the media has focused on, or you have got a very strong support system, or your mental health is in place, a lot of people don't pursue the systems that will actually give them visibility and restore their voice. And we always want to say that we encourage victims to come forward. And, you know, we we have to say that from the one side, From an activist perspective, we want this so that it strengthens the justice system and it speaks to other victims. From the other side of activism for empowerment, we want women to do this because we want to know that no, our bodies are not supposed to be sites of violence. We are not supposed to carry ourselves with shame. If somebody has done something to me, I have got the right to get some kind of recourse and that person must be held accountable. So it's it's more towards our social attitude. That is why gender-based violence continues to be on the rise. We are speaking to the boy child. He feels that he is he is immune to the ramifications of his actions if he performs some kind of violent act on a woman, a child, another boy, whatever it is. And that's why we keep having these conversations. Mm. The discussion mm. that what, where does the marginalization come from? We are equally as responsible for how people receive any initiative we have to respond to their experience of anything negative as much as the systems that are put in place, being the police, being um, our community forums, being Department of Social Development, being the NPA. So as society, we have that responsibility. And if we are not ensuring, because we also know that our country, you know, some things can 
can really be improved on the systemic side, why are we not strengthening ourselves on the social side? Within our communities, we can increase our level of visibility if we're going to be talking to the young girls. If we tell the young girls that if you are pregnant, if you, are, if you want to have sex, you've got a boyfriend or you've got a partner, if you've got somebody that you are interested in, these are the resources we have available to you so that you can understand what you're going to be experiencing, what you want to engage in, what are the ramifications, because I kid you not, some girls don't know that you can get pregnant the first time you have sex. And if kids don't know this, and when I talk about girls, I'm not talking about the 12-year-old, I'm talking about the 16-year-old who's in school and who Jonathan has now convinced her to have sex. And then she finds herself pregnant. This boy has got to go back to his home and he has to answer why he was not informed. And maybe he comes from somewhere where there are resources. So it's also the resource gap. We're imagining that children all come together, young people all come together, women all come together, and they have the same amount of information. And what I found very interesting is um, an expression, a saying, a phrase, something that says, Sometimes we say that we all have 24 hours in a day, so we should all be able to do as much. But your 24 hours is not the same if in when you begin your day, you're navigating mental health, you're mm -hmm. navigating a hostile mm -hmm. environment, you're navigating hunger, you're navigating poverty. My 24 hours when I wake up, go to the gym, eat my breakfast, access my internet, go onto my Instagram, get into my car is very different. So we have to take that same approach when you talk about educating society. We can't assume that the interactions are on a premise that is equal. It is not an equal platform. Knowledge of sexual health, reproductive health is not equally disseminated. And we have to take it no matter where you are. If you're teaching at North Riding High School, or if you're teaching at Cosmo, or if you're teaching in rural Etequini, assume that the children know zero. And then educate them all equally in your community. Assume that they all know zero because, you know, there might be that girl who's got a sister, who's got a friend, who shares resources with her, but that's not the reality of everyone. So the invisibility comes because we're waiting for a systemic response to a societal issue where society is experiencing it for 20 odd years, historically even, and we are not doing anything. I think we have to really shift the narrative and empower society to respond. And when society fails, then ask the system to come in, but tell the system that, okay, we have done a, B, C, D, we've equipped them, they're well informed on healthy sexual practices, HIV prevention, they know about diseases, but we're still having this issue. Mm. What can be done? Hmm, there's a lot that would be achieved if we took on that approach. And would you agree, Inga, that the manner in which CSE is taught needs to be revised? Absolutely. Without a doubt, I say it unequivocally. It must be. And, and, and you know, this thing of opting out mm. of your child getting CSE, I know that, you know, our constitution allows for religious freedom. It allows for freedom of expression and what your child must be accessing. But I think if your child is going to be socialized in a community, it is very detrimental if you feel that you don't want them to have the education 
that is going to equip them and empower them. I think you're doing, you know, if, if keeping this clause in is doing a disservice, I think if we come together from a holistic multi-sectoral approach, you know, what is the what is the religious community saying? What is the traditional leaders community saying? You know, not just from a basic education saying we want to do this, but let's sit with the parents. What is your fear? If you don't want your child to do this course, why? Why do you not want them to, to learn about sex? As a human being, a sexual being, why do you not want them to be equipped? If we understand that, then maybe we can revise it. But as it stands now, it is a failure of, 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 a, of a, a program that needs to be implemented. It really needs to be revised, reviewed, informed by other literature. A lot of research and psychology has to go into this, you know, get anthropologists, economists to tell us what is the economical reality of servicing the sexual, um, the, the results of the sexual experiences that children are having that are negative. You know, let's talk about how many teenagers are coming seeking abortions, how many are seeking contraceptives. If they can give us a budget on that, then we can talk to education how many teachers are you able to train to do this what's your budget for that let's talk to communities can you have a community hall a place to sit to gather the narratives and feed them back so mm. that we can have a very informed program yes yes sure and as we conclude we've had an extensive conversation and many of us at times can be so complicit in enabling or promoting a lot of these harmful ways of navigating sex for someone regardless of gender or any social construction who struggles with understanding consent and boundaries what can you recommend as a great way to navigate the two concepts moving into the new year wow um I like to think that our civil society is becoming increasingly empowered, especially where young people are concerned. But because we're talking about this in the context of the education system, you know, I know a lot of schools, and I'm saying this from a very privileged imagination, should have life orientation and counselors available. Mm-hmm. And if that is not available, there are adults in your community that are supposed to, before you even seek the services, because I know that the reality for many of our young children is that the socioeconomic divide means that they have no data, they don't have, for example, access to internet, and they don't have transport to go to certain spaces. But I think Nondir would do well for us to see within communities where are the information points for, for children, young people to understand, you know, your own sexuality, it's so important, but also sexual health. And then seek the services of organizations such as ours. Um, there are many that are like women and men against child abuse, but we are even on the responding end. So I would advise them. Um, I know there's some, some, some very good social workers that are positioned as a, as a, a program of of SAPS to talk to that can be available to talk to young adults. But I think the the reality is a lot of children are not able to access resources and we need to find where they are before we ask them to go and seek the resources. A lot of research, if we can have this ongoing conversation and see where are the limitations to access to resources. Sure. Thank you so, so much. You certainly came through with so many things to think about. Thank you for joining me on the NDL show, Nga. Thank you very much, Nundu. It was an absolute pleasure.
That was Ngam Rombezi from the Women and Men Against Child Abuse organization. The issue surrounding consent is quite complex and there really needs to be a new approach to how we teach sex. I mean, I often see posts of people judging young girls who are pregnant, but to be quite honest, that only points to the bigger issue at hand, the failure of sexual education as well as the failure that we all contribute towards as a society when we're not actively teaching young people about the facts of life that they are bound to encounter at some point. And I can hear someone saying that there wouldn't be such debates if people just got married, but consent and boundaries still exist in marriage. Amen. A very loaded conversation as we go into February. Let me know where you're at on the idea of consent and how sexual education and society at large has played into the social ills that we see at present day. How has this affected you personally, especially if you went through the system of comprehensive sexuality education? It's not a gender question please do feel free i will leave the link to my article relating to this conversation in the show notes let me in on your thoughts on that as well we leave you with this track by max titled okay it's from her second ep sizzle which is available on every digital platform thank you for rocking with us catch you on the next one maybe you should ask if i'm okay or maybe just check if i'm fine Got a lot going through my mind right now, certain I'll fall in line I think I should stop asking questions on whether it could be my time Pass the egg and let us hit up on right, think I should start my night Sipping, wishing that things will be different, everything will be okay Maybe one day, nothing will feel like it's missing I won't be so pessimistic I'll learn to lean on your shoulder and not Not on my instinct Maybe you should ask if I'm okay Or maybe just check if I'm fine Got a lot going through my mind right now Certain I'll fall in line I think I should stop asking questions on whether this could be my time Pass the egg let us hit up our mind